5. Populated, and the mounds which are met with everywhere prove that this was already the case in ancient times. In fact, mounds, in groups or isolated, are numerous as far north as ascension. How richly the apparently poor soil repays the labor which man expends on it may be seen in the flourishing colony the Mormons have here. Wherever they go, the Mormons transform wasteland into scenes of prosperity. So much so that the Mexicans attribute the success of these indefatigable developers to a gold mine, which they are supposed to work secretly at night, as I found it imperative to return to the United States in the interest of the expedition. I considered it expedient to reduce my scientific corps to three. My camp at San Diego I left in charge of Mr. H. White, who later on was relieved by Mr. C. B. Hartman. During my absence they conducted excavations of the mounds along the southern bank of the Piedrasburgs River, near its junction with San Miguel River, and in convenient neighborhood to the camp. Neither the mounds themselves nor the houses inside of them differ much from those already described on the upper part of the river, except that some of the mounds here were somewhat larger. Judging from the beams left, they probably contained a few three-story houses. However, in either locality most of the mound houses were only one story high and where second or third stories were indicated, they were never found intact, in neither place were circular houses observed, the mounds here were located on a rich, alluvial clay soil, here, as on the upper part of the river, the treasures we secured were taken from underneath the floors of the houses, where they had been buried with the dead, here, as there, they consisted of beautifully decorated earthenware jars and bowls, some of them in bizarre representations of animal and human forms, besides stone implements, shell beads, pieces of pyrites and turquoise, all being generally unearthed intact. The things were found alongside of skeletons, which were huddled together in groups of from two to five in one of the corners. The jars, bowls, etc. had generally been deposited close to the body, as a rule near the head. The skulls of the skeletons were mostly crushed, and crumbled to dust when exposed to the air. There was no trace of charring on the bones although in some cases charcoal was found close to the skeletons. To excavate such mounds is slow and tedious work, requiring much patience. Sometimes nothing was found for weeks. Small mounds gave results as good as, if not better than, some large ones. In shape they are more or less conical, flattened at the top, some are oblong, a few even rectangular. The highest among them rose to 20 or 25 feet, but the majority varied from 5 to 12 feet. The house walls inside of them were from 8 to 16 inches thick. The pottery which was excavated here may be judged by the accompanying plates. It is superior in quality, as well as in decoration, to that produced by the pueblos of the southwest of the United States. The clay is fine in texture and has often a slight surface gloss. The result of mechanical polishing, though the designs in general remind one of those of the southwestern pueblos, as, for instance, the cloud terraces, scrolls, etc. Still most of the decorations in question show more delicacy, taste, and feeling, and are richer in coloring. This kind of pottery is known only from excavations in the valleys of San Diego and of Piedrasburgs River, as well as from Casas Grandes Valley. It forms a transition from the culture of the pueblos of Arizona and New Mexico to that of the Valley of Mexico, a thousand miles farther south. In a general way the several hundred specimens of the collection can be divided into four groups. One the clay is quite fine, of white color, with a slightly grayish-yellow tinge. The decorations are black and red, or black only. This is the predominant type, and may be seen in plates I and II. Also plate II. 
two of a very similar character, but somewhat coarser in texture, and heavier. See Play II, 2, and Play IV. Both these groups include variations in the decorative designs, as may be seen in the rest of Play IV. 3 Brown Pottery with Black Decorations. See Play VABC and 4 Black Wear. Here follows a condensed description of the more important specimens shown in the plates, play eye heights, 18.5 cm, 15.2 cm, 16.2 cm, 18.8 cm, 11.3 cm, 8.5 cm. Particularly graceful in outline and decoration, is a representative type that is often found. From Colonia Dublin, is made in the shape of a horned toad. The lizard so familiar to anyone who has visited the southwest of the United States, the head with its spikes, and the tail as well, are well rendered, the thorny prominences of the body are represented by the indentations around the edge. The principal decoration here is the plumed serpent with a bird's head, a vase in the shape of a duck, a bowl decorated only around the edge and in the interior, plate eye height, 16.5 centimeters, here is shown what in regard both to manufacture and to decoration, is the best specimen in the collection. Its principal ornaments are the plumed serpent and two birds, all clearly seen in the extension of the design above and below the base. The lower section is a continuation of the upper one. The birds are represented as in flight. Mr. M. H. Saville is probably right in considering them as quetzals, though the habitat of this famous trogon is Central America and the southernmost part of Mexico. The bird and the serpent form the decoration of other jars of this collection and would indicate that the makers of this pottery were affiliated with the Aztecs in their adoration of the great deity Quetzalcoatl. Play II heights. 18.5 cm. 18 cm. 17 cm. 11 cm. 14.5 cm. 15.3 cm. 24.2 cm. A jar in the shape of a conventionalized owl. A jar in the shape of a fish, is a much conventionalized representation of four horned toads. Around its upper part it has two serpents, apparently coral snakes, attached in high relief. Play ID heights, 14 cm, 16.8 cm, 18.6 cm, 12.2 cm, 22 cm, 18.5 cm. A very realistic representation of the rain grub, has a black slip is very strong and highly polished, and differs also in coloring from the rest. Plate V heights, 3.7 cm, 9.8 cm, 25.6 cm, 17 cm, 20.7 cm, 19.3 cm, 19.3 cm. This brown wear is very handsome, and its ornamentation is strikingly artistic in its simplicity. See, for instance, Plate BDF and represent pottery from Casas Grandes, distinguished by a certain solidity and a higher polish. Chapter V Second Expedition Return to the Sierra Parrots in the Snow Cave Dwellings at Garabato. The most beautiful in northern Mexico is superb view of the Sierra Madre the Devil's Spine Ridge Guainopa. The famous old silver mine arose river on old trails adventures of El Chino, cure for poison ivy. When in the middle of January, 1892, I resumed my explorations. My party was only about one-third as large as it had been the year before. In pursuance of my plan, I again entered the Sierra Madre, returning to it, as far as Pacheco, by the road on which we had come down to San Diego. We traveled over freshly fallen snow a few inches deep, 
and encountered a party of eight revolutionists from Ascension, among whom I perceived the hardest-looking faces I had ever laid eyes on. All questions regarding their affairs they answered evasively, and I could not help feeling some anxiety for three of the men, who were the Mexican guide, had for some weeks been exploring the country around Chuaicapa, a discarded cattle range some forty miles south of Pacheco. Next day I sent a man ahead to warn them against the political fugitives. The Mormons told me that for more than a fortnight they had been keeping track of these suspicious-looking characters who had been camping in the neighborhood. There were repeated falls of snow, and the Sierra assumed a thoroughly northern aspect. Only the multitude of green parrots with pretty red and yellow heads, chattering in the treetops and feasting on pine cones, reminded us that we were in southern latitudes, as all tracks had been obliterated by the snow. I secured a Mormon to guide us southward. About ten miles south of Pacheco we pass Aid Mountain Valley, or Los Montezumas, so named after the extraordinary number of Montezumas, or mounds, found in the locality, probably not far from a thousand, looking at them from a distance. There seemed to be some plan in their arrangement, inasmuch as they formed rows running from north to south. They are small and nearly all of them are on the south side of a sloping plain which spread itself over about 500 acres in the midst of densely pine-covered highlands. On making camp a few miles south of this plateau we found that one of the mules had strayed off. My dismay over the loss of the animal was not alleviated by the news that the mule was the one that carried my blankets and tent, and that I had a good prospect of passing at least one uncomfortable night on the snow. The American who had been entrusted with keeping count of the animals on the road immediately went back to look for the lost one, but not until next day did a Mexican, who had been sent along with him, bring back the pack, which the mule had managed to get rid of. The animal itself and its apparatus were never recovered by us. On my arrival at Chuaicapa I found everything satisfactory. There are extensive grasslands here, and a few years after our visit the Mormons established a colony. The name Chuaicapa is interesting as it is the first one we came upon that was of undoubted Tarahumar origin, Chui, being the Spanish corruption of Chui, which means, dead. The name signifies, the place of the dead, possibly alluding to burial caves. Here Mr. Taylor had discovered very interesting cave dwellings, 15 miles southeast to east in a straight lilac from the camp, but fully 25 miles by the track he had followed. The Mexicans called the cave Garabato, a Spanish word which in Mexico is used in the sense of decorative designs, and refers here to ancient paintings or scrawlings on the house walls. The cave is situated in a gorge on the northern slope of the Arroyo Garabato, which drains into the Rio Chico. It is in conglomerate formation, faces east, and lies about 215 feet above the bottom of the gorge. The ascent is steep and somewhat difficult, at a little distance the high, regular walls of the houses, with their many door and window openings presented a most striking contrast to their surroundings of snow-covered jagged cliffs. In the lonely wilderness of pine woods, some of the walls had succumbed to the weight of ages, but, on the whole, the ruins are in a good state of preservation, and although I found cave dwellings as far south as Zapori, Chihuahua, none of them were nearly as well preserved nor on such an extensive scale. Time would not allow me to visit the cave myself and the following description is based on notes taken by Mr. Taylor on the spot, as well as on his photographs and his verbal explanations. The space covered by the houses and fallen walls was 125 feet from side to side, and at the central part the dwellings were 35 feet deep. The roof of the cave, or rather, the overhanging cliff, 
was at the highest point 80 feet above the floor. The houses were arranged in an arc of a circle so large as hardly to deviate from a straight line. The front row seems to have been of but one story, while the adjoining row back of it had two stories. The roof of the houses at no place reached the roof of the cave. Each room was about 12 feet square, and the walls, which showed no evidence of blocks or bricks, varied in thickness from 15 inches at the base to 7 inches at the top of the highest. At some places large stones were built into the walls, in another wall wooden posts and horizontal sticks or laths were found. The surface of the walls, which were protected against the weather, was smooth and even, and the interior wall showed seven or eight coatings of plaster. The floors, where they could be examined, were smoothly cemented and so hard as to effectively resist the spade. The pine poles which formed the roof were smooth, but not squared. They were three to four inches in diameter, and some of them were twenty-four feet long. According to all appearances, they had been hewn with a blunt instrument, as they were more hacked than cut. Many of them were nicely rounded off at the ends, and several inches from the ends a groove was cut all around the pole. In the center of the back rooms of the ground floor there was usually a pine pole, about ten inches in diameter, set up like a rude pillar. Resting on this and the side walls of the rooms in a slight curve was a similar pole also rounded, and running parallel to the front of the houses, and crossing it from the front to the rear walls were laid similar poles or rafters about four inches in diameter. The ends of these were set directly into the walls, and covering them was a roofing of mud, some three inches thick, hard, and on the upper surface smooth. The second story, where it had not caved in was covered in the same manner. None of the lower story rooms had an outlet to the apartments above and the evidence tended to prove that the second-story houses were reached from the bottom of the cave over the roofs of the front row of houses by means of ladders. Most of the rooms were well supplied with apertures of the usual conventional form, sometimes there were as many as three in one room, each one large enough to serve as a door, but there were also several small circular openings, which to civilized man might appear to have served as exits for the smoke, but to the Indian the house, as everything else, is alive and must have openings through which it can draw breath, as otherwise it would be choked. These holes were three or four inches in diameter, and many of them were blocked up and plastered over. A large number of what seemed to have been doorways were also found to be blocked up, no doubt from some ulterior religious reason. A peculiar feature of the architecture was a hall not less than forty feet long, and from floor to a rafter seven feet high. Six beams were used in the roof laid between the north and south walls, there were rafters of two different lengths, being set in an angle of about ten degrees to each other, the west wall contained twelve pockets, doubtless the cavities in which the rafters had rested, they were, on an average, three inches in diameter, and ran in some six inches, slanting downward in the interior, the east wall was found to contain upright poles and horizontal slats, forming a framework for the building material, the interior was bare, with the exception of a ledge running along the southern side and made from the same material as the house walls. It was squared up in front and formed a convenient settee. At the end of this hall, but in the upper story, was found a house that was distinguished from the others by a peculiar decoration in red, while the space around the door was painted in a delicate shade of lavender. There seems to have been still another hall of nearly the same length as the one described, but which must have been at least one foot and a half higher. It is now almost entirely caved in. No objects of interest were found that could throw any light on the culture of the builders of these dwellings, except the fragment of a stone axe and a piece of matting. 
The day after my arrival at Chuaikup I continued my journey, now accompanied by Mr. Taylor and Mr. Meads, we had as a guide an old Mexican soldier, who had been recommended to us as a man who knew the Sierra Madre better than anyone else, he had, no doubt, lived a wild life, had taken part in many a scrap with the Apaches, as his body showed marks of bullets in several places, and he had prospected for gold and silver, traversing a good deal of ground in the mountains at one time or another, but topographical knowledge per southeast does not necessarily make a good guide, although, Don Diodoro, by something like instinct, always knew where he was, it did not take us long to discover that he had not judgment enough to guide a pack train, and his fatuous recklessness caused us a good deal of annoyance, and even loss, after leaving the grasslands of Chuaicapa, we passed through extensive pine regions, full of arroyos and cordons, and it struck me how silent the forest was here, no animal life could be seen or heard, about ten miles south we caught sight of the Sierra de Candelaria, which suddenly loomed up in the southeast, while the Arroyo de Guinope beyond on our left, we slowly ascended a beautiful cordon running toward the southwest, the track we followed, our guide assured us, was El Camino de los Anaguas, but it probably was only on a Apache trail, the cordon was rather narrow, and from time to time gave us sweeping views of the stupendous landscape in one direction or another, as the animals slowly made their way up and finally reached the summit, a grandly beautiful sight awaited us, we went a little out of our way to gain a promontory, which, our guide said, was designated, Unto Magnifico, it was at an elevation of 8.200 feet, and gave us certainly the most strikingly magnificent view of the Sierra Madre we yet had enjoyed, an ocean of mountains spread out before and below us, in the midst of it, right in front of us, were imposing pine-clad mesas and two weathered pinnacles of reddish conglomerate, while further on there followed range after range, peak after peak, the most distant ones, toward the south, seeming at least as far as eighty miles away, the course of the rivers, as they flow deep down between the mountains, was plonked out to us, the principal one is the Arrows River, which from the west embraces most of the mesas, and then, turning south, receives its tributaries, the Tuduwaka and the Mulatos, the latter just behind a pinnacle, west of the Arrows River stretches out the immense Mesa de los Apaches, once a stronghold of these marauders, reaching as far as the Rio Benito, the plateau is also called, the Devil's Spine Mesa, after a high and very narrow ridge, which rises conspicuously from the mesa's western edge and runs in a northerly and southerly direction, like the edge of a gigantic saw. To our amazement, the guide here indicated to us where the Camino Real from Macquarie Pass ceased over a gap in the Devil's Spine Ridge, and then over several sharp buttes that descend toward the mesa. An odd-looking mesa lay between Rio Benito and Rio Setachi. Farthest to the west were the big dog packs near Macquarie, standing out ominously like a perpetuated flash of lightning, the sun was nearing the horizon, the air was translucent, and the entire panorama steeped in a dusky blue, immediately below us, to our left, Lake Winopa, the mountainside looked so steep that it seemed impossible for us to descend from where we were, but we already heard the voices of our muleteers singing out to the animals 1.000 feet below, and that reminded us that we also had better reach camp before darkness should overtake us. We descended 2.500 feet, and, leaving the pines behind, found ourselves in a warmer climate. It never snows here, according to our guide, that the precipitation took the shape of rain we learned when we were impeded by it for two days. 
There were yet 18 miles between us and the deserted mines of Guinopa. It was a laborious journey over the hills, mostly ascent. Finally we came to a steep slope covered with oaks, along which there was a continuous descent toward Guinopa. While zigzagging our way down, we caught sight of a large cave with houses and some white cone-shaped structures staring at us across and a right midway up the opposite side, which was at least 2,000 feet deep. Through my field glasses I could make out very distinctly a group of houses of the usual pattern, and the large, white structures could without difficulty be recognized as granaries, similar to those observed in Cave Valley. It was my intention to go back and examine this cave more closely, as soon as I had found a camping place, but circumstances interfered. Several years later the cave was visited by Mr. G.P. Ramsey, to whom I owe the following brief description. The cave is situated about 25 miles in a straight line south of the Mormon colony of Chuaicapa. There are indications of a spring in the cave, and there is another one in the Arroyo itself. The buildings are in a very bad condition, owing to the action of the elements and animals, but 53 rooms could be counted. They were located on a rocky terrace extending from the extreme right to the rear center of the cave. This extreme right extended slightly beyond the overhanging cliff, and contained groups of two-storied houses. In the central part of the cave were a number of small structures, built of the same material and in a similar manner as those I described as granaries in Cave Valley. They were still in excellent condition, and, as will be seen at a glance, they are almost identical with the granaries used to the present day in some southern states of Mexico. We continued our descent, and, having dropped altogether some 2.000 feet, at last found ourselves alongside some lonely and inattractive old adobe houses. They were built by the Spaniards and are reputed to have once been the smelter of the now-abandoned silver mine of Guinopa. Only the naked walls remain standing on a decline, which was too steep to give us sufficient camping ground. So we went still a little further, to the top of a hill nearby, where we made a tolerably good camp. This then was the famous locality of Guinopa, credited with hiding such fabulous wealth. There was still another mine here of the same repute, called Tayopa and both of them are said to have been worked once by the Jesuits, who before their expulsion from Mexico were in possession of nearly all the mines in the country. According to tradition, the Apaches killed everybody here, and the mines were forgotten until recent times, when ancient church records and other Spanish documents revealed their existence. Several expeditions have been sent out, one, I believe, by the government for the purpose of locating them, but being situated in the roughest and most inaccessible part of the Sierra Madre, they are still awaiting their rediscovery, unless, contrary to my knowledge, they have been found in recent years. There is no doubt that the country carries very rich silver ore, and we ourselves found specimens of that kind, but the region is so difficult of access that it probably would require too great a capital to work the mines. There was now a plain track leading along the hillside down toward the Rio Oros which is scarcely two miles off, but the country was so wild and rugged that the greatest care had to be exercised with the animals to prevent them from coming to grief. The path runs along the upper part of a steep slope, which from a perpendicular weathered cliff drops some 400 feet down into a gorge, as the declivity of the slope is about 45 degrees, and the track in some places only about a foot wide. There is no saving it if an animal loses its foothold, or if its pack slips. All went well. However, until we reached a point where the track commenced to descend, when our villain of a guide tried to drive some burros back on the track, instead of leading each one carefully, the result was that one of the poor beasts tumbled down, 
making immense bounds, a hundred feet at a time, and, of course, was killed. We had no difficulty in fording the Guinopa Creek near its junction with the Eros River, and selected a camping place on a terrace 200 feet above it. The stream, which is the one that passes the cave dwellings, carries a good deal of limpid water, and there are abundant signs that at times it runs very high. The elevation of the ford, which is here about the same as that of the Rose River, 3.400 feet, was the lowest point we reached in our crossing of the Sierra Madre between Chuaicap and Mosachic. It took us almost the entire day to move the animals the one mile and a half to this camp. On the way we had found some good quartz crystals in the barite, about four inches high and one inch in width. The country before us looked more forbidding than ever, as if it did not want us to penetrate any further into its mysteries but our guide seemed to be quite at home here. Our march toward Rio Chico was about 30 miles of UPS and downs, ascending to a height of 7.600 feet and descending again some 3.000 feet. In the beginning it was almost impossible to make out the track, where it did not lead over bare rocks. It was nearly obliterated by overgrown grass. The first ascent was over a mile long in a straight line, then, after a little while, came the most arduous climbing I had until then ever attempted. Following the slope of the mountain, the track rose higher and higher in long zigzags, without any chance for the animals to arrest. For at least three quarters of a mile, it was necessary to push them on, as otherwise the train would unavoidably have upset, and one or the other have rolled down the declivity. One large white mule, El Chino, after it had almost climbed to the top, turned giddy at the glory-crowned height it had reached and, sinking on its hind legs, fell backward and rolled heels over head down, with its two large canvas-covered boxes, like a big wheel, as luck would have it, it bumped against a low-stemmed old oak that cropped out of the hillside in an odd two-angle to it, some ninety feet below, making one more turn up the stem, the mule was nicely caught between the forked branches, which broke the momentum, loosened the cargo, and caused the animal to fall back into the high grass. One box landed close by, the other, containing our library, pursued its course downward 200 feet further, bursting open on the way and scattering the wisdom of the ages to the winds, while the mule escaped without a scratch. The burros came into camp three hours after us, and the drivers explained how they had succeeded in bringing them up the long slope only by constantly punching them to prevent them from falling asleep. As we continued our journey toward Rio Chico the panorama of the Sierra changed continuously. We got a side view of the big Mesa de los Apaches, and many weathered pinnacles of eroded conglomerate were seen standing out like church spires in this desert of rock, varying in color from red to a league gray. Once we caught sight of a stretch of the Rio Oros deep down in a narrow, desolate valley, some 3.000 feet below us. The geological formation of the region is mostly volcanic, then follows conglomerate, and on the high points porphyry appears. We camped on the crest of the eastern side of the Rio Chico Canyon, in an ideal place with bracing air. A fine, sloping meadow afforded quite an Arcadian view with the animals peacefully grazing and resting, but looking westward, the eye reveled in the grand panorama of the Sierra. The two sides of the Rio Chico Valley rise here evenly from the bottom of the gorge so as to suggest the letter V in many places its brow is overhung by precipitous cliffs, and further down still more steeply walled chasms yawn up from the riverbed. My chief packer now became ill from the effects of poison ivy. He was one of those unfortunate individuals who are specially susceptible to it. According to his own statement it sufficed for him to pass anywhere near the plant, 
even without touching it, to become afflicted with the disease. In this case he did not even know where he had contracted it, until the cook showed him some specimens of the plant near an oak tree close by the kitchen tent. The poor fellow's lips were badly swollen, he had acute pains in his eyes, and felt unable to move. Sometimes, he said, the disease would last ten days, and his skin become so tender that he could not endure the weight or contact of his clothes, but by applying to the afflicted parts of his body a solution of baking soda in water, I was able not only to relieve his suffering, but to enable him, after two days, to continue with us on our journey. In the meantime we had investigated some caves in the conglomerate of the steep cannon side, about 250 feet above the bottom of the gorge, and rather difficult of access. The house group occupied the entire width of a cave, which was 80 feet across, and there was a foundation wall made of stone and timber underneath the front part. The walls were made of stone, with mortar of disintegrated rock that lined parts of the cave and were plastered inside and out with the same material. Lindos of wood were seen in the windows, and rows of sticks standing in a perpendicular position were found in two of the walls inside of the plastering. On one side of the cave, some two feet off, was a small tower also in ruins, measuring inside four feet in diameter, while the walls were about six inches thick. Pinnacles of eroded conglomerate are a prominent characteristic of the landscape west of the Rio Chico, further on. The usual volcanic formation appears again. After fully twenty miles of travel we found ourselves again in pine forests and at an altitude of 7.400 feet. Here we were overtaken, in the middle of February, by a rain and sleet storm, which was quite severe. Although we were sheltered by tall pine trees in a little valley, it turned to snow and grew very cold, and then the storm was over. Here a titmouse and a woodpecker were shot, and the bluebirds were singing in the snow. Traveling again eleven miles further brought us to the plains of Neverchik, where we camped. It was quite a treat to travel again on comparatively level land, but, strange to say, I felt the cold so much that I had to walk on foot a good deal in order to keep warm. The word Neverchik is of Tarahumir origin, Nave means, move, and Rikai refers to the disintegrated trachyte formation in the caves. We had just emerged from a district which at that time was traversed by few people, perhaps only by some illiterate Mexican adventurers, though it had once been settled by a thrifty people whose stage of culture was that of the Pueblo Indians of today, and who had vanished, nobody knows how many centuries ago. Over it all hovered a distinct atmosphere of antiquity and the solemnity of a graveyard. Chapter VI Fossils And one way of utilizing them Mosachik the first Tarahumer's plows with wooden shares visit to the southern Pimas and original half factories Pinos Altos the waterfall near Jesus Maria on adventure with Ladrones. About 30 miles from the village of Mosachik in the Tarahumer Tongri Mosachik means stone heap we entered the plain of Yapamra and came upon an entirely different formation limestone appearing in an almost horizontal layer some 30 feet deep. In this bed the Mexicans frequent, 